Okay, so I've just been editing the podcast and unfortunately the first six-ish minutes of audio has not really recorded. Uh, mine and Jack's microphone was off, so we've had to just boost Zach's mic up. Really sorry about the audio quality for the first six minutes though, but it does get better after that. So if you can just stick with it to six minutes, I promise the audio does get better. Hello and welcome to Trust Issues, the podcast where we track the first 100 days of Cliss Trust's premiership. Joining me today are Zach Michaelis, TLDR's editor in chief. Hello, Jack. And Ben Blissett, TLDR UK's lead writer. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. It seems to have calmed down significantly. For Liz Truss. Yeah, Liz Truss, yeah. Not just, much. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we've just been desperately searching for Liz Truss, and I don't know what's happened. No. She's suddenly fallen off the radar. She went to Lidl on Sunday. No, I have no idea. We've sent out a man to follow her around. Mm. That's not true. Don't, don't feel like that should be on you. Someone's going to cut around. Um, okay, so, Trust is out, yeah. as I think people ought to know by now. We're yet to rebrand the show, though, by Thursday, we will have rebranded. Um, so, what is happening in politics? What is the big story right now? Yeah, so... Thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. just your notes, you've got such good notes again. So yeah. just, yeah. Um, already. Um, and yeah, no, it's Suella Bradman is still, is still so well, that... that um, the story is still going on. It's uh, Labour is still calling for her basically to be removed. Um, as Home Secretary, there's still a lot of um, backlash to her. So effectively, she's today published a letter which she sent to um, Dame Diana Johnson, who's the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee. Yeah. So this, this letter is sort of designed to explain what had happened, mm -hmm. how she had um, sent emails to her personal email address and how that then got sent to the wrong MP. Uh, and she sort of explains why that didn't have national security concerns, um, presumably just to try and show that she's being transparent and to try and maybe dampen some of the backlash, backlash that's uh, gone towards her. So she sort of starts this off by by giving some context. Um, it all happens around the 18th, 19th of October. Okay. So the 18th of October, she was saying that she was drafting a written ministerial statement about um, legal and illegal uh, migration. Yep. The day after, on the 19th of October, she does this sort of um, uh, chronology of her day to try and explain why what hadn't happened. I think some parts are really justified. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. So she says that she started at four in the morning um, and she took part in an operational raid uh, with the crime agency. Um, Someone that is like CEO, what I do in a morning video. Yeah, exactly. I, don't yeah. I think I think the reason she put this in is to try and show that she was she's she's hard tired, she's yeah. hardworking, all this. Because I don't see why this has any relevance. Other than that. So it's, it's that. Well, then, yeah, exactly. Well, this is what I'm saying. Um, and then she says that on the, her, on the way back from this, in, in, on the car ride home... At what time? Uh, I think it was about six in the morning. Still early. Mm. So, yeah. She didn't have uh, her phone that she given by the pub. She had her personal phone. Mm. So she put the wrong email address in to an MP that she was emailing a draft, the draft written ministerial statement to. Yes. And she tried to CC in uh, the secretary's the MP secretary email yeah. address as well. That didn't work. Um, she then emailed, she figured out later in the day about 11 in the morning uh, that she sent it to the wrong person. So she emailed back saying, please can you delete the message uh, and ignore. Um, which is, just, if you've got that email, delete and ignore, you're absolutely every attachment. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what kind of a red flag is that? Well, the other thing is, is that that doesn't, um, there's no guarantee that that's going to No, as you say, they, they could have only emailed it. That's a very small thing to do yeah. after that. 
She was then met by the Chief Whip and Andrew Percy MP later on, and yeah. she kind of bumped into them in, in the lobby. Uh, Andrew Percy was the one who the email had gone to unintentionally. He was seemed quite furious, and that she, in the report this morning sent an email. She, she documented the email that was sent by him. Yeah, um, and he was he was basically saying, "How can this have happened? I've told the Chief Whip, and then it got escalated and uh, went to those trusts." Yeah. And she also then goes on to admit that uh, she often emails herself government documents because when she's on it, and I, I don't understand this, when she's on a Teams call, she goes on the Teams call on her uh, departmental phone. Mm -hmm. So she can't read notes on that and be on the call, apparently. So, so she she'll email it to her personal phone, read the notes on her personal phone. Sure. Does she not have a laptop? Does she not have mm. a laptop? There's also, I'm sure there's things on the phone doing split screen, but nonetheless. Um, iPhone probably not. Well, yeah. iPhone's pretty so she, she then finishes it up by basically saying she's been given extra training. Yeah. Um, and she's been given an iPad. She's promised. She promises not to do it again, uh, and therefore she should remain in her job. Um, that's basically it. She says she ends the whole thing by saying the review of my use of government and personal IT has now concluded and the matter's closed. Which is remarkable that she thinks she can judge when the matter's closed. So I'm yeah. sure the media won't take her view on it. Uh, so yeah, I. I, I it didn't really explain too much. It sort of just, you know, some of the explanations seemed quite weak. Um, well, I doubt this is going to put to bed many of the, um, uh, you know, the issues that people have with this. What do you make of this, Zach? Well, I think last week when we talked about this, I said it wouldn't make much of a difference to the wider trajectory yeah. of Sunak's premiership. Um, I think this story has a bit more purchase than it would do in normal times. Um, in part because there's not much else going on, so this is sort of dominating the headlines. But also because I think this is something I failed to, to sort of realise when we were talking about it last week. But also because this this story essentially paints Sunak's new government with the same brush as, as the old government. Yeah. So Sunak is obviously trying to reinvent this government as a yet another iteration of the Tories. Okay. Um, but this story has all the hallmarks of a Johnson slash trust story. Yeah. You know, it has the, has the incompetence, mm -hmm. you know, doing it six times instead of just once. And the fact that you're a home secretary, I mean, that yeah. you're supposed to be quite security conscious. You'd hope so. Um, the, there's an element of dishonesty in there mm -hmm. because in her resignation letters trust, she claimed that she rapidly alerted the cabinet secretary of the breach, but actually her new timeline that Ben just outlined says that there was a two hour gap exactly. between yeah. her realizing and then her alerting someone. And then finally there's this classic sort of Johnsonite failure to take responsibility, like this, this reluctance to apologize. Mm -hmm. And Ben again, detailed it very nicely, which is a, she, well, basically, at the end of the letter, she says the matter's closed. You know, yeah. I have decided the matter's closed. And then, obviously, in that time that she gives, she has this whole spiel about how she was up really early in the morning. And so, like, <laughs> give me a break, you yeah. know? Um, and I think that's why the story is, is worse for Sunak than it might seem at first glance. It's just because it it's consistent with the, the problems that plague the um, Johnson and Trust government. And it's going to make Sunak, well, it's going to make it a lot harder for Sunak to reinvent this yeah. as a new government. Do you think this matter's closed, Ben? Obviously, Bravman says that it's closed, that she thinks it's being concluded and reviewed and whatever. Do you think, one, that this will be officially the end of it? Is that the expectation? Is there more review to happen? And from a kind of media politics perspective, do you think this is over or do you think we'll continue hearing about this? Well, I think Zach's absolutely right that this is only really big because there's nothing else really happening. Sure. Like, I, I completely agree with that. And to be honest, I think that as much as it, it is sort of rattling on and it's still continuing, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it's the same level of scandal that we had during Liz Truss no. and Boris Johnson. This isn't reflecting on Rishi Sunak's premiership. You know, I know it's still really early days. 
and, and I think I said this last time, if this continues, if things like this continue, then it might become regarded as the first mm -hmm. uh, of a number of scandals. But, you know, that all depends on the future. But on its own, I don't think it's really, it's really that much. I think that um, in terms of whether it's going to continue and, uh, internally and whether it's going to continue within government and whether there's anything extra to come here, yeah. um, you know, the ministerial code is presided over by the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak said again today that he has full confidence in her. You know, previous Prime Ministers, that doesn't really mean much. That could mean that she's gone by the end of the week. Yeah. But I do think that the only reason that this is really continuing is because there's nothing really else happening. I, d I think it's unlikely that he's going to sack her based on this. And to be honest, I think once the media get their teeth sunk into something else, they'll sort of forget about this. I mm -hmm. think most people don't really care too much because it, it's... Um, as she detailed in there, it's not... I'm not defending her. I think it's still, you know, it's still... She broke the ministerial code. Yeah. But she explains that it didn't contain any top secret, secret information. It didn't contain anything that the, you know, anything sensitive. Yeah. Uh, if so I it think the wider out, public don't really yeah. care that much, to be quite honest. If it turned out that it was something really sensitive or personal information about like someone who was like, I don't know, it's similar to the Donald Trump situation and like there being information about a foreign <clears throat> government's nuclear, whatever, or like. Yeah. agents that are undercover like if it was that level of breach you can see the increased scandal but i think you're right that i don't know and i, don't I, think I also agree with zach though that this is a bad beginning for what was meant to be a new chapter there is as you say all the hallmarks of previous failed governments and also just the fact that she was always a fairly contentious pick like if it had been another minister mm. it might have been glossed over even more but people were already unhappy that she was there because of this the first time round. I remember when she first resigned there, were, there was talk the day after of she resigned based on you know the, the timeline that I just explained mm -hmm. and, and all of that but there were people the day after she resigned sort of speculating about whether it was something else and there were, there were sort of MPs coming out and saying oh well ministers do this this happens from time to time it seems like a lot like quite a small thing to resign over perhaps there's been a falling out between Bradman and Trust etc yeah. etc um, perhaps people just didn't have all the information back then and, you know, may maybe it's bigger. But I just, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think it's just that there's not much else really happening at the minute. Speaking of not much else happening at the minute, let's go back to Liz Truss, mm. the, the kind of titular hero of this podcast. Titular um, hero? That's, yeah, that's okay. good. Yeah, that's good. What do you oh, no, just that? hero. Just the, yeah. yeah, I didn't think you'd ever describe Liz Truss as your hero. Of this podcast. Yeah. I didn't say she was my hero. <laughs> Hashtag not my hero. Um, Liz Truss's phone. Also security issues here, right? Kind of not the same story, but kind of similar, similar world. Um, what's happening with Liz Truss's phone? Yeah, I think this is probably a bigger, this is, you know, yeah. much more serious. Um, but this was from a little a little while ago. So the, this, the story broke this weekend. It was from um, the, the Mail on Sunday, uh, claimed that um, Liz Truss's phone was hacked when she mm -hmm. was Foreign Secretary, so not when she was Prime Minister, when yes. she was Foreign Secretary, by foreign agents. They believed that it was Russia that was behind the attack, and they believed that they might have been able to... Um, foreign agents might have been able to intercept private messages exchanged between Truss's personal phone and uh, foreign officials. Yeah. Um, it, it, apparently, this first became known to the government during the summer leadership election. Yes. And Boris Johnson and uh, Simon Case, who was the cabinet secretary, decided to uh, not let on, not let the public know about this. So yeah. This has only just come out. Um, obviously, th th this is huge if, if, if it is true, and it, it demonstrates that you know, there's going to be some serious questions about security, and it's another you know, case involving a personal phone of a senior minister. Uh, so both of these things happening over the weekend probably isn't the best look. No. 
No, no, I, I agree with that. I, I think it's, a, it's one of those stories where had obviously had it come out while Johnson was prime minister, it would have been a massive story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact that the prime minister was actively suppressing what was a very, very serious national security breach. Yeah. Um, and he's in a sense lucky that he's not. Um, yes, true. But the, the only other thing I'd say about this is today there's been a very interesting story. Well, it's not actually interesting. It's completely unbelievable. But <laughs> Russian intelligence have claimed that because they had access to Truss's phone, that Truss sent uh, a text to Biden saying, quote unquote, it's done one minute after the Nord Stream explosion mm. as, as sort of like proof that the, yeah, that the UK blew up Nord Stream. Yeah, because that is exactly how international diplomacy works. Trust text Biden with a sort of like <laughs> bond desk. It's done. Um, and it's just one of those. Is the implication then that it was the British that did it? On behalf of the US, ah. yeah, that's the implication. That's always there. good for the special relationship. Yeah. Maybe we should claim that did happen. <laughs> it's always flattering, isn't it, when the Russians see us as sort of like the secret superpower. Yeah, I know. Little do they know. Well, I mean, they do know we're run by Liz Truss. We're definitely I not do, I, do also, I, I think it makes it more believable that uh, Truss might try and be quite cool and say it's done. Like, I do believe that Truss would do that. Yeah, maybe she would actually. Sort of cosplaying James yeah, Bond. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's serious implications to this though. This kind of kind of brings to light an underlying concern about security, especially in relation to Russia and China, who have quite significant powers in this realm. Do we think this is a broader concern beyond just Liz Truss and her secret texts about Nord Stream? Uh, I mean, clearly the civil service and certain elements within government, Tom Tugendhat, again, we mentioned he's, he's a good big proponent of this sort of thing, are very worried about Chinese influence um, in the UK and essentially Chinese intelligent capacity in the mm -hmm. UK. Um, so I think, yeah, that is something to worry about. But I also think that it's one of those things where our relative laxness in this respect is more a symptom of the fact that for most of the past decade, we haven't really been engaged in well, essentially what might be described as a cold war yeah. against any major power. But now that, you know, clearly public and political sentiment is the belief, well, that basically both the, the electorate and the political class believe that we are in a sort of cold war with, with well, we're in basically a hot war with Russia and mm. a cold war of sorts with China. You should expect security to improve over the, I don't know, over the next couple of years or so. I think that this is just, we're just playing catch up here. We've been too relaxed about it for too long. And now yeah. we finally realize that actually that, we are in a, a war of sorts with relative superpowers yeah. um, and things will improve or you'd expect them to. At least. You'd hope so yeah. because as time goes on, as we become more and more digitized, there's more cameras, more microphones everywhere. This is a genuine serious concern. So I guess let's hope some real action is sparked by this. Staying on the kind of Russia note and the kind of hot war as you described it there. Um, there's some new polling out by Ipsos looking at the UK's uh, general public's opinion on the war in Ukraine and kind of situations like that. Um, do you want to run us through this, Zach? Because some interesting data that's kind of brought to life here. Unfortunately, Ben has the notes just there, so I think you might be Have better placed. Oh, okay. Thank you. Very kind. Um, the broad strokes overview of this polling is essentially that while public support for essentially sanctions um, on Russia has waned, mm -hmm. um, it's still a majority position in the UK. So the latest polling uh, basically suggests that 52% of Brits are in favour of economic sanctions on Russia, even mm -hmm. if it incurs some sort of economic costs, while 23% are opposed. That is down a little bit from... I think that the peak was basically in March mm -hmm. when it was about 73% uh, in favour and just 8% um, yes. against. So a big um, swing. It is quite Still a big Still a majority, swing. but the yeah. number of people who are against has gone up quite significantly there. Yeah, I mean, in some sense that's unsurprising though, isn't it? Because yes. obviously 
well, in back in March, if you remember, it's sort of hard to even think back to March, but in March, we were talking in really distant hypothetical terms mm -hmm. about possible energy price rises. And that was when energy price cap predictions were only at like a couple of thousand pounds. Yeah. You know, people saying you have a 60% increase in energy bills. Obviously, now we have the energy price guarantee, mm -hmm. which lasts until April. Yeah. Um, but we had a lot of talk about essentially energy bills going up by sort of 400%, 500%, at least compared to what they were in 2020. Um, and it's somewhat unsurprising that's going to really freak people out. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's going to be exacerbated by the fact that the government is clearly planning to roll back some of the support they originally um, proposed uh, because apparently we don't have the, the fiscal space yeah. to go through such a massive package. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think you, you should expect some increase in the people, number of people, amount of people opposing it. But I think it is still interesting and probably more remarkable that it's still a majority position. And if you exclude don't knows, I mean, that's like 70% of people who are actually saying one sure. way or the other. Um, and that, that's, that's pretty impressively significant. And I think that at least before the war began, this was a line both on, on the, in the fringes of the British media and on Russian state media. The idea was that while the Europeans might be enthusiastic about the war now, when winter comes and yeah. the prospect of, you know, basically high energy pills in the context of cold temperatures um, comes around, support will wane pretty quickly. But that mm -hmm. is just not what's happened. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I think one of the main reasons, actually, is that there is... Uh, what you might describe as elite consensus on the issue. There's, elite, there's consensus amongst the main political parties that we want to be hawkish on Ukraine and yeah. we want to support Ukraine and we want to support sanctions on Russia. Um, and that's in part a function of the fact that that's a Europe-wide position mm -hmm. or even a transatlantic position, obviously. Yeah. Um, but we're also lucky in that respect because I think if you can imagine that if one political party, a major political party, was... Um, pushing back against sanctions, as has happened in places like Italy, as has happened obviously in places like Central Europe, so places like Serbia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine support might wane just that bit more quickly. Yes. Um, and the polling bears that out, obviously. I mean, Italy, there's more skepticism about sanctions than there is here in the UK. That's, again, some part of function of the fact that the media, the media environment there mm -hmm. is very different because it's dominated by right-wing radio stations owned by Silvio Berlusconi. Um, but yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons. I think one of the other reasons is that Europe has coped remarkably well with its transition away from Russian gas. I think that now it looks increasingly likely that we, we have enough gas as mm -hmm. a continent to survive the winter. I say survive, we're always going to quote unquote survive the winter, but we have enough gas as a continent to survive with a relatively mild recession yeah. um, and, and probably fewer excess deaths than people were originally predicting back in March. Um, but the, the main reason that's important is not just because it means we have a milder winter per se this time around, but we've, we've invested enough in LNG infrastructure and, and we've transitioned quickly enough that this is no longer looking like a sort of five, six year problem. You know, if you remember yes. back in like March, um, some European politicians were warning that actually it's not just going to be 2022 winter, 2023 yes. is going to be difficult. It's going to be all the way through to 2027, 2030. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you, if that had been your pitch to the European public, you're going to have to be cold for five, six years. Yeah. They, they wouldn't have sucked it up. But I think that actually, if you can just say to them, listen, guys, it's this winter. This is mm. the one winter. Once we're through this, the Russians don't have enough to export their gas. Their, their revenues are going to drop off a cliff. Um, they won't be able to fund their war effort. That's an easier pitch, yes. essentially. And I think that, that that's really helped. Um, I think the other... I'm sorry, this is a bit of a rant. But no, go for I it. I think the other interesting thing... Um, 
is that there has been polling from from the other side of the wall, um, mm -hmm. as you might might say, from the Levada Center in Russia, which is just about the only credible polling institution okay. inside Russia. Obviously, you still take these numbers with a pinch of salt, because they're still, in some sense, subject to indirect oversight from the Kremlin. But um, the Levada Center's most recent polling from October says that, and I have the notes here, so I'm going to do some reading, um, <laughs> says that 57% of Russians now support peace negotiations wow. um, in Ukraine, which is massive. That's it's huge. huge. Yeah, and you can compare that to last month where it was 48%, where it's 44% were saying continue the special military operation. Mm -hmm. Today, only 36% want to continue the special military operation. Yeah. And this is largely driven by the partial mobilization. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that no matter how good your grip of the media environment, as, as you know, the Kremlin has a great grip of the media environment yeah. in Russia, you, you can't hide that from an electorate. You can't hide that from a population. The fact that you are taking hundreds of thousands of young men off the streets and, and putting them on the front lines in Donbass. And, yeah. and clearly the Russian public is realizing this, which is why support is waning. Um, just to give you some more numbers on this, the most recent polling from October says that 53% um, of Russians think the military operation has been successful. And while that might sound like a lot, 31% say it's unsuccessful. Mm. And that's a, really, that's a really significant minority. That's especially, again, given the grip that they have on the media environment there, you wouldn't expect 30% of Russians to be saying it's, a, it's not going well. And also, again, polling taken with a pinch of salt it could be even higher. And again, that's massively down from March, when mm. only 15% thought it was going badly and 73% thought it was going well. Um, so what's interesting is that you're really in this, we sort of have this race between European and Russian public sentiment, assuming that the Kremlin is susceptible to political pressure. Because if the European public sentiment can, can essentially weather the economic costs of the, the war in Ukraine, um, f until Russian public sentiment turns, mm -hmm. then you, you should expect the Russians to essentially want to end the war faster. You see what I mean? Here? Yeah, I see what you're Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're in sort of a, yeah. Um, and as things stand, the rate of Russian, uh, the rate at which Russian, Russian sentiment regarding the war in Ukraine is deteriorating is faster than that of in Europe. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is good news for Ukraine, I guess. Yeah. Um, might change over the winter, obviously. Who knows? We've had a very mild October so far. But yes. um, yeah, that's the, the broad overview. The only thing that I would like to, and I know this goes back slightly um, to the Ipsos polling, but. Um, the only indication from the data that was released today uh, that public sentiment in the UK is starting to wane yeah. is the amount of people who have said that they'd be happy to support um, the UK government continuing its economic sanctions, um, even if they lead to, and then there's a number of things, mm -hmm. and one of them is increased energy prices. Yeah. So 73% um, back in March said that they'd be happy to continue uh, with economic sanctions, even if they did lead to higher energy prices. Yeah. That's dropped now in October to 41%. Wow. So it's, that's quite a significant reduction. And that's probably because people are starting to feel um, the, the increase in energy. You know, back yeah. then it what hadn't actually gone up that much, whereas now it's, you know, roughly about doubled. Um, but obviously that's still, you know, still 41% saying that even now they'd still yeah. be happy to see um, energy prices get worse. But that's the only sort of, yeah, I, that, I, that you know, that's border point. I, I completely, that's the only thing in there that suggests that public opinion is starting to wane. But on all, basically all the other indicators, it seems that, that it's not. I suppose that one being the one kind of makes sense, though, because that is the area where most blame has been attributed to mm. the sanctions and to Putin's illegal war in Ukraine. Because... That is what politicians are saying. Prices are going up. 
because of the war. And that is predominantly true. I mean, there's other factors as well, but that is a major factor. And I suppose in other areas, politicians are careful not to turn sentiment and not to blame the war too much for things. But I guess with energy prices, they're kind of desperate to push blame somewhere else. So therefore they're saying, look, the raisin prices are higher is because of the war and sanctions and all those things. So therefore, I guess it makes sense that if you're being told to draw that line, then that feels more more kind of well, linked, energy, more personal. In, and energy is so, yeah. Yeah, in percentage terms, it's seen the highest rate of inflation yes, of all possible commodities. Yeah, so. Well, cool. some interesting data for sure. Some interesting data. <laughs> That's always such a good way of ending any of those. With some interesting data. Interesting. By, by looking at some graphs they can't <laughs> see. What a great way to end. Um, thank you very much for joining us for the what I'm going to call the last episode of Trust Issues. Mm. We will officially be rebranded um, by the time we next speak to you at the end of the week. Um, probably to Rishi Business. It seems to be the most popular one. We like Rishi Business. I don't mind Rishi Business. Ben doesn't like Rishi Business. Ben I don't actively like doesn't like. I'm fairly neutral. It's not as good as Trust Issues, I've got to say. No, it's not. I don't need to explain the Trust Issues joke again, but it works on the level. This whereas Rishi Business It's just a pun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll join you next time for Rishi Business. <laughs> what an enthusiastic outro. <laughs>